Let us now turn for our scripture reading to Zechariah chapter 7. And we'll read through this chapter, which is our text for this morning. Now in the fourth year of King Darius, it came to pass that the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, Chislev, when the people sent Sherezer with Regem Malak and his men to the house of God to pray before the Lord, and to ask the priests who were in the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, saying, Should I weep in the fifth month and fast as I have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months during those seventy years, did you really fast for me, for me? When you eat and when you drink, do you not eat and drink for yourselves? Should you not have obeyed the words which the Lord proclaimed through the former prophets, when Jerusalem and the cities around it were inhabited and prosperous, and the south and the lowlands were inhabited? Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Execute true justice. Show mercy and compassion, every one, to his brother. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. Let none of you plan evil in his heart against his brother. But they refused to heed, shrugged their shoulders and stopped their ears so that they could not hear. Yes, they made their hearts like flint, refusing to hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Thus great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. Therefore it happened that just as he proclaimed, and they would not hear, so they called out, and I would not listen, says the Lord of hosts. But I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations which they had not known. Thus the land became desolate after them, so that no one passed through or returned, for they made the pleasant land desolate." congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, two years had now passed since uh, these visions that the Lord gave to Zechariah that we've been considering in the first part of this book. And uh, that very fact is a reminder that uh, uh, what we have in the scripture under the names of these prophets is only a selection uh, from their public ministry. Not everything that they uh, proclaimed in the name of the Lord, is uh, included in Scripture. Haggai and Zechariah prophesied for a number of years, and uh, that uh, prophecy included far more than what the Holy Spirit recorded for our use. But just a reminder of the nature of the prophetic ministry. But in this passage before us, uh, we have a delegation of men who came to the temple, and there are two reasons that are indicated uh, for their coming. The first is prayer that they might pray. And secondly, that they might inquire about the continuation of fast days that had been observed for the 70 years of captivity. And uh, first there is reference to the fifth month, because the fifth month was the month in which the temple had been destroyed. And uh, there's also a reference to the seventh months, and that is significant because that was the month in which uh, Gedaliah, uh, who had uh, been set up by Babylon to govern what was left of, of uh, Judea, was murdered, and, uh, and uh, that brought further judgment upon the land. And those became days of 
fasting and uh, remembrance of those disasters that uh, took place. And they inquire as to whether those fast days uh, should continue. It's about 20 years now since the formal release of the captives. And uh, given the fact that uh, the temple is uh, now close to completion, the question was, is it still appropriate uh, to remember its former destruction with these days of humiliation and, and fasting? Now, it's not clear whether this delegation of men came from uh, the captivity itself in Babylon or just from those that were living in the land, but they came with these questions, and we have every reason to believe that they were serious about these questions, that they were, that they were devout uh, people. They came to pray. And uh, we have to appreciate also that this question that they ask about fat fasting it uh, it goes beyond a technicality. Uh, technicality. Uh, it's really a question about God's will for them and God's relationship to them now as His people. And uh, the Lord provides a rather lengthy answer to this question. It's not only chapter seven, but uh, that answer continues in chapter eight. And uh, these two chapters are themselves divided into four sections each of them beginning with the words, the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. We have that twice in chapter 7, and then twice again in chapter 8. And that's important also for our uh, understanding of this morning's message. It's important for the way we listen to chapter 7, because chapter 7 is not the complete answer to this question. Chapter 7 uh, we might say strikes us as being rather negative. It is uh, critical of God's people. Yes, indeed. But that doesn't mean that God's reply to their question is only one of rebuke and one of warning. Rather, it also includes precious promises and encouragements to God's people. And uh, really, God's answer, especially in chapter 8, is at the heart of the message of this book, which we have already seen is a message of hope. It's a message of encouragement in God's covenant faithfulness and His rich promises to His people. And we don't want to forget that uh, this morning. In His reply, the Lord proclaims His way of spiritual restoration. And uh, that can be taken as a theme for the next few sermons because we're going to consider that uh, reply not only this morning in connection with chapter 7, but the Lord willing in two more messages following on uh, chapter 8. But chapter 7 makes clear that God's way of restoration does involve repentance. And chapter 7 proclaims this repentance, the path of repentance from a self centered a selfish kind of formalism of which the people had become guilty. And the Lord addresses that very directly. In addressing that, He uh, says, in effect, put the Lord first. Put the Lord first in all your religious observations, or observances, rather. The Lord didn't condemn these fasts uh, that had been observed by uh, the Jews in Babylon. He did not condemn 
these fasts as such, though they were not required in the law. The law of God did not prescribe these fasts. Actually, there's only one fast that was uh, uh, prescribed in God's law in connection with the Day of Atonement, and that itself was a, a partial fast. But he didn't condemn their observance of fast days as such. And actually, if we look to the next chapter, there were two more. Verse 19 of chapter 8 speaks of the fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth. Now, we already looked at the fifth and the seventh, but the fourth month apparently was that month in which uh, the, the Chaldeans laid siege to uh, Jerusalem. And the tenth was the date of the destruction of the walls, as I recall. But anyway, we have four fasts that all uh, remembered with humiliation different events in the destruction of, of Jerusalem, events surrounding the captivity. But the Lord didn't condemn their observance of these fasts as such. And in the same way, it may be observed, it might be useful to observe that historically the church has uh, exercised a kind of freedom uh, to observe days of thanksgiving, for example, uh, which we observe yet to this day. Uh, we have an annual Thanksgiving Day service or days of prayer. Uh, we have a prayer day service uh, this week where the consistory calls God's people uh, to worship. And so historically, the church has observed uh, days of thanksgiving, uh, sometimes days of special uh, prayer and, and fasting, uh, though they're not required, or days that commemorate important events in the history of redemption. For example, the birth of Christ, or the death of Christ, or the ascension of Christ. And we realize that there is no uh, biblical commandment to observe these days on those specific days in which we gather for worship to give special attention to them. And for that reason, historically, there has also been objections raised to the observance of such days, especially in the times of the Reformation and uh, by, by Puritans. And again, to understand the situation is helpful to evaluate their objection. They were reacting, and I would say overreacting, to a kind of uh, legalism and a kind of mandatory observance that had been imposed by the Roman Catholic uh, Church for years, which involved all other kinds of regulations, uh, even mandatory Sabbaths in which people were to abstain from labor. And so they were associated also with superstitious observances, and they were made uh, requisite as necessary. Now, we don't call these special days holy days, nor do we uh, abstain from work unless we want to or we get a day off from work, but we don't treat them as if uh, they are on par with uh, the recurring uh, Lord's Day. And yet the elders do not violate some biblical principle by calling uh, the church to worship on such days, again, as we as we have this week. And certainly if someone would would uh, raise a conscientious objection to such observation, uh, we would not force them. We would not uh, make it obligatory contrary to their conscience. We would try to persuade them that uh, God certainly is not displeased when the church gathers 
uh, to call upon him in prayer. And, uh, there's no reason to think that God would be displeased by giving special attention to those uh, crucial events in the history of redemption. In the days of the Reformation, there were worship services five, five days a week in uh, 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 every other week in Calvin's Geneva. And uh, that was a recognition of the church's freedom uh, to call uh, the church to worship on special occasions. And uh, though we would not make this mandatory contrary to one's conscience, yet uh, we would seek to try to persuade them that there is Christian liberty to honor God also with these uh, special occasions. But that's important for our understanding of uh, the Lord's re- response to this question. He didn't commend or condemn these fast days and says, why are you doing this in the first place? I never required of this, this of you in the law. What the Lord rebukes is a, a formality and a su- superstitious observance of these days. Now, they showed a serious commitment. Uh, imagine their willingness to abstain from food on these uh these these days that they observed. And uh, we have no reason to doubt the, the genuineness and the sincerity of their religious concerns and commitment. But we're also given to understand that seriousness and commitment even to religious practice is not the same thing as a sincerity before God. You see, one can even go through the motions of of humility, and one can act in a way of outward self-denial without a heart of humility in the sight of God. We hear that in the Lord's answer in uh, verse 5. He said, Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months during those 70 years, did you really fast for me? For me, he repeats it, really, think about it. Examine your motivations. Reflect upon what was really going on. What was your intention? Honoring God and pleasing Him must be first. That must be first in in every kind of religious observance. It extends beyond that, but certainly when it comes to worshiping the Lord. It's so basic, isn't it? And yet so easily forgotten. It can be forgotten by those who are diligent in outward worship. It can be forgotten by those who uh, regularly come to church but are kind of careless about their reasons for coming and the attitude with which they come. And it can be forgotten by those who neglect to come to worship when they could, if they wanted to. But so often we begin at the wrong place. We begin with the wrong question. We begin by asking, what's in it for me? Do I expect a blessing? Do I think it will be beneficial to me? Do I feel like it? That's totally backwards, isn't it? What does God require? And what does God want? What will honor Him? It's possible to go to church without <coughs> God-centered attention and preparation and prayer. And it's possible not to go to church. 
without any clear intention, even as to why people don't go to church. Sometimes I ask the question of myself and others, what is it? What is it? You know, it's, it's difficult. Uh, to make judgments about individual cases because there are so many different circumstances. But uh, when you observe a trend, when you observe a, a kind of church cultural trend in a diminishing attendance to the second service, you ask why. You ask why. Are we on the same pathway of some of our former churches to which we once belonged, which no longer have second services anymore because after a period of time with the dwindling of observation... Well, then the rationalizations entered in for making it more like a family day and have a Bible study and uh, don't burden people with expecting them to come twice on ch- to church every Sunday. And whatever whatever specific uh, answers to that questions there may be, I, I, I believe that in many instances it involves a lack of conviction and concern about what God wants us to do. I think there are many people, uh, Christian people, who are not really convinced that it is a holy and solemn obligation to heed God's call to worship. Because it's not about us, it's about Him. He commands us, He summons us to enter into His courts, to sing unto Him, to call upon Him, to render Him to Him the glory that's due His holy name. And I think if we would ask the right question, well, that often influences our our practice in the attitude of our practice or whether or not we practice religious observances. Are they done unto the Lord? Are they done for Him? Put the Lord first. The Lord calls us to self-examination on these things. Why am I doing this? In effect, these people were asked, why really do you fast? What's your motivation? Are you paying your dues? Do you think you're somehow going to placate God by offering Him uh, a token uh, humiliation? Are you trying to bribe the Lord? Are you trying to avoid His judgment? Is that that all there's to it? Or is it with a desire to honor Him and to seek true spiritual renewal and His promised grace and strength? Or why do you feast? Interestingly, verse 6 changes the question. It says, when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat and drink for yourselves? Yes, there were uh, there was a fast day prescribed in the Old Covenant in connection with one of those feast days, but there were feasts. There were observances that involved feasting. If you don't, Feast or fast unto the Lord. Well, why do you feast? Is it because you have an enjoyable time eating together and socializing among your fellow Jews at the temple? But when it comes right down to it, it's really, again, for yourself, without true gratitude of heart to God, without the intention to express that to Him, before Him, among His people. In the New Testament, we read, actually, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Now, that's a that's a calling upon our entire lives, is to live as before the face of God. But certainly that has to do in a very focused way in uh, all our religious observances that they're done unto the Lord. Because He requires it. Because we know that it is 
good for us, and we want to uh, make use of it for those God-centered reasons. Put God first. Put the Lord first in all your religious observances. That's the first answer. And the second answer is practice love for others. This was actually a great theme of former prophets. Should you not have obeyed the words which the Lord proclaimed through the former prophets? Actually, some renderings uh, express this question this way. Are not these the words which the Lord proclaimed to the former prophets? And uh, both of those uh, renderings are, uh, are well-founded in the language here. You might notice that a number of these words in our translation, are, are put in italics. In other words, they're supplied by the translator to, to capture the significance of this statement. But it seems likely that it's a, a, a statement recalling people's attention to the words that had formerly been spoken by the prophets. Well, what did these prophets say? What did Isaiah say, for example, about this, this question of fasting? Well, we hear it in Isaiah chapter 58. I'm going to read seven verses. It's going to take a minute, but I, I uh, call for your careful attention. Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit all your laborers. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Do I call for this outward display of humility as if somehow you're going to placate me, as if you're somehow going to pay me off or bribe me by these expressions? Would you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I have chosen? to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out? When you see the naked that you uh, hide, that you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh, then your light shall break forth like the morning. That's what Isaiah has to say about fasting. What about Amos? What does Amos say about feast days? Along with the worship services of Israel. Well, we can listen to him in Amos chapter 5, where he says, in the name of the Lord, I hate, I despise your feast days, and I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments, but let justice run down like river, like water, and righteousness like a mighty stream. Remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ that we know 
not yet written, recorded for us, where Jesus says, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. There are two tables of the law of God. There is the first table, the first four commandments that have to do with the the worship and the love that we owe to God. And then there are six more commandments, commandments five through ten, that pertain to how we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And you know that God's word often cites the second table of the law as a, as a test of our claim to worship, to obey, to love God. Like this is the evidence. Without that evidence, any other claims or professions or activities, they're not real. Remember what uh, John says in his first epistle in chapter 4, where he says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. And the same book clarifies that this love is not simply a matter of word, but it is a matter of action. It's a matter of deeds that show love. Well, what does love look like in practice here? Well, first of all, it, it involves acting on behalf of others. Thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 9, execute true justice. Show mercy and compassion, everyone to his brother. Those in authority, those with influence especially, have a responsibility to carry out justice. And in this context, that meant uh, uh, civil justice, the ordering of Israel, to punish and correct wrong, to defend and to reward what is right, to alleviate misery and suffering. That is loving action. That's how we show mercy. It doesn't say have mercy and compassion. It's not enough to, to feel something in your heart. It has to be shown. It has to be demonstrated. And actions that actually alleviate misery and provide practical help. So it means acting on behalf of others. Secondly, it means avoiding every kind of oppression or mistreatment of others, especially those most vulnerable. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. Don't take advantage of their inability to fight back. Don't take advantage of position or power in order to mistreat them. Do not oppress. And then thirdly, abstain. Abstain from even evil thoughts against your brother or sister. Beware lest there be in any of you an evil thought against your brother. Uh, we have this warning in Deuteronomy. And there it has to do with thoughts of scheming how to withhold uh, what is uh, right for them, what they've got coming to them. Don't imagine ways in which you can swindle others. Take advantage of them. Don't even think about it. Yes, they involve plans or perhaps thoughts of vengeance. Fantasies of harm coming uh, to those who have done you wrong. Even to rejoice in the fall of your enemy 
is condemned in Scripture. Yes, God requires that we love our neighbor as ourselves, And without that, our religion is empty. Practice love for others. Humility before God must affect our relationship to others. We cannot possibly know ourselves for who we are as sinners in need of mercy and be hard-hearted and without compassion for others. Now, that doesn't mean that we never act inconsistently. But the fact is that the fundamental disposition of a Christian is also to love our neighbor and to love them for God's sake. God won't hear the prayers of those who do not practice love for others, for their brothers, for their sisters, for their neighbors, even for their enemies. God has shown you, O man, what is right. What does the Lord require of you but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? Those those things cannot be separated. So the second answer with regard to the pathway of restoration after putting God first, just like the law of God, God does, love your neighbor as yourself. And then thirdly, apply the Lord's lessons from the past. Remember the reason for the Babylonian captivity. That's far more important than fasting on the date of the temple's destruction. Far more important than that is avoiding the actual cause of the temple's destruction. And that's spelled out here, isn't it? Their fathers... They refused the Lord's word. They refused to heed, we read in verse 11. They refused the burden of God's will. That's how we might understand this language. It says they they shrugged their shoulders. And we might think, hmm. But actually it's a word that indicates like the turning the turning of a, of a, of a shoulder in a way that indicates a refusal to take upon a burden. A refusal to take upon themselves the the yoke of God's will. Think of Jesus' invitation. Come to me, you who labor and are, are heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. I'm meek and lowly of heart. But to come to Christ is also to come under his gentle yoke. But it's a yoke of, of allegiance to God and to turn aside the shoulders to refuse to come under that allegiance to the Lord. They refused his word. They refused the burden of his will. They, they stopped their ears. It's like the imagery is they stuck their fingers in their ears. And they hardened their hearts. It's like their entire personality was turned away from God's word and his will. They sinned against the written word. That's the law of God. They sinned against the spoken word. God communicated the meaning of that law through the prophets. And in doing so, they sinned against the Spirit of God. Because it's by His Spirit who inspired the word that the truth of that word was also communicated. Whom God had appointed to make it plain in direct communication and application. But they refused it. And the Lord's great wrath came upon them. 
the word came to them in the midst of their prosperity. We read in, in verse uh, 7, when Jerusalem and the cities around it were inhabited and prosperous, the south, the lowland were inhabited. The word of the Lord came to them in the midst of prosperity, and then it left them in desolation. I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations which they had not known. And thus the land became desolate before them. And this is probably what the most, the most dreadful part of this, this, uh, call to remember what happened. And that is that they refused to listen to the Lord when he spoke to them. And then the Lord refused to listen to them when they cried out under his judgment. Yeah, that, that dreadful time is coming. It may be when people face the reality of death. It may be when they face the reality of the Lord's return and they heard his word and they refused it. And in the midst of fear, in the midst of terror, facing the reality of God's judgment, oh, they'll cry out to God, but he won't hear. He won't answer. He won't have mercy on them. It's too late. That's a dreadful description of the consequence of refusing to hear God's word. The Lord calls for faith, not formalism. Yes, that's the point of this message, brothers and sisters. And I know it's a, it's a heavy message. That's why I said at the outset, we don't want to uh, separate it from the rest of the Lord's answer. I know we're doing that this morning for the sake of time, but consider this as half of a sermon. But yet we need to hear it for what it says. And remember that God preserves his people. And he does so through the warnings and threatenings of Scripture as well as the promises, right? You'll read that in the Canons of Dort in connection with the perseverance of the saints. Yes, God uses the threats and the warnings of Scripture to preserve his people because they take it to heart. And they're reminded that they must take God's word seriously. And that means repenting of their sins, turning to him in sincerity. That's what the Holy Spirit uses to preserve us in the faith. It's a gracious word that we hear this morning from God. Why do we need such warnings? Well, we might ask this question. Why does the church constantly trend toward liberalism? Now, that could be stated in any number of ways. That's a historical question. That's not, that's not a question specifically about this congregation. It's a question about the reality of the state of the Christian church down through the generations. Why does the Christian church always trend towards a movement away from the word of God, away from commitment to his word in its detail? Why does the church always tend to loosen up and lighten up rather than to reform more and more according to the word of God? Or we might ask the question, why is this, there, this insidious creep of worldliness? Why is there always this tendency towards conforming to the world and its practices and its attitudes? Why is there the emptying of pews? Historically, why has that happened? Why is it that very few churches in this city have a second service? 
Churches which historically, you look at them, doesn't matter. Presbyterian, Baptist, Lutheran, whatever it might be. Years and years ago, almost invariably, they always had two worship services on Sunday. Well, one of the reasons for that is empty pews. Empty pews in the second service. But why? Why did these things happen? What happened in a former church that many of us once belonged to? What, what, what accounts for this movement towards innovation in interpreting scripture in order to accommodate to the trends of this current age? What's the explanation for it? It was not a love and zeal for the authority of God's word. It's not the result of people trembling at the word of God. It's not the result of a love for the savior and a desire to follow him in everything that he says. No, it's nominalism. It's formalism. It's church culture. It's religiosity. People move away from the Word of God. And if they don't tremble at the Word of God, they begin to question the Word of God. And they begin to question the Word of God, and they begin to criticize the Word of God. And then they begin to replace the teaching of God's Word with their own ideas and human wisdom. That's the trend. And you might say that it's rooted in formalism, nominalism, that we must always be aware of. Think of the letters to the churches in the book of Revelation. There are seven letters dealing with a variety of issues. It's interesting that there's a similarity between the first and the last. It's like these letters are, are book, they have bookends. They're enclosed by very similar kinds of problems. The church of Ephesus had left their first love. And the church of Laodicea was lukewarm. They had lost their passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were not moved by the wonder of his saving mercy. They departed from him. And their worship, though it may have been orthodox, it was not for the Lord. And so, yes, we need these warnings because of this constant tendency of our own deceitful hearts the constant, constant drift that characterizes the Christian church away from the Word of God. So let's receive these warnings in humble faith and prayer. Amen.